2: Hello and welcome
3: to a special live edition of the Future Visions podcast by Virgin. I'm Natalie Campbell, and over the course of the past six episodes, we've been peering into a crystal ball to learn how advancements in technology and thinking will change our lives over the next 20 years. From the surreal world of augmented reality to robotic doomsdays and feminist futures, we've been speaking to some of the world's most prominent thinkers and experts covering science, technology and business to work out what we need in our toolkit to thrive in the years to come. To round off this series, we asked you what you wanted to cover in more depth. And after an amazing 7,000 responses to our Future Vision survey, the overwhelming message was that you wanted to hear more about the impact of artificial intelligence. Questions from you included things like, what skills will we need to thrive in the workplace alongside the increased presence of AI? Will automation put us out of work? or give us greater freedom by eliminating menial tasks? And what are the ethics of AI in the workplace? So to get a better understanding, we have invited three of our experts to reconvene for a deeper discussion in front of a live audience at The Cube in East London. At this point, I should say, if you haven't listened to the rest of the series, you might like to go back and listen from episode one. But otherwise, let's strap in now and head to the stage for Future Visions Live. Good evening, all, and welcome to Future Visions Live. I'm hoping that all of you have listened to the podcast, but if you haven't, Future Visions was launched by Virgin in May 2017, so this year, to look at the surreal world of tomorrow through the finest minds of today, and I'm joined by some of those contributors uh, now. And we looked at things as diverse as robots. The robots are coming or not. We looked at presentism which was a bit of a mouthful to say on the actual podcast. We looked at how AI and technology changes the relationships around gender and ethnicity within society. And we had one where there was lots of swear words um, which was great. That was Cindy Gallup's one. Um, so every other word was, was a swear word. It was, it was brilliant. But what it did, it got people thinking about technology in a different way. This wasn't an exclusive conversation about AI and technology. This was a conversation that included everyone that brought AI and things that, that seem distant and far off right into the present and right into the now. So this evening, we're going to have a conversation about that, about the world of work and AI. I'm going to introduce Araceli Camargo, founder of theCUBE, to talk a bit about the work that she does and her perspective on AI. Just a brief snippet for
4: the audience. Um, Hi, I'm Araceli Camargo. Um, I wear two hats. One is as the founder of the space that you're in, which is theCUBE, and we focus on science, technology, and art, and we've had a long-standing relationship with Virgin for about nine years now. Um, They were one of the first to listen to what we were saying, so we're very thankful for that. I'm also a cognitive neuroscientist, which I apply to the Centric Lab, which is looking at neuroscience in the built environment, so I'm very interested in how people perceive the environment, how they are affected by the physical environment.
3: Wonderful, thank you.
4: And Ben...
3: So Ben and his wonderful moustache, which I referenced on the podcast, is a British internet technologist, journalist, author and broadcaster. What else would you like to say about yourself in your own words?
5: Hi. Um, (laughs) So I I have, as everybody does, many hats. But uh, currently I work as a futurist around the world for different sort of corporate and military and government clients and doing sort of near term scenario planning for them. Uh, but my current sort of research is on the science and psychology of peak performance and elite performers. So as a sort of side things, I'm a pilot and a rescue diver and an expedition medic and things like that. And I'm taking a lot of the learnings from those fields and applying them to the rest of the world, trying to, trying to find the best techniques for living and working to the best of our abilities, which will then enable us to work with AI and so on for the rest of this conversation.
3: Wonderful. And we were having a conversation downstairs, Ben is actually based in Venice Beach, so has a, a perspective of, of being in the UK in the cold as it is right now and then flying back to Venice Beach and having all of the warmth.
5: Very cold right now. Yeah. <laughs>
3: yes. And Tracy, who has just moved back to the Midlands.
6: <laughs> Not Venice Beach. <laughs> <Yes>. No. Sadly. <laughs>
3: so Tracy Beach. is an award-winning <laughs> futurist <laughs> and you work with clients such as Google and Diageo. You write and speak regularly on the future of AI, gender, work and culture.
6: Mm-hmm. Tell us a bit more about you. Um, so I've been a futurist for about past five or six years and I worked in advertising for about 20 years. So my clients tend to be in sort of, you know, media, corporate clients, brands, businesses and we're looking at near to far futures. Mm -hmm. So we do a lot of horizon planning, scenario planning as Ben mentioned and a lot to do with consumer futures. So I guess I'm less about just trying to look at or forecasting technological change and a lot to do, as I'm sure we all are, about societal and social change. And I'm particularly interested in AI and gender and diversity, um, partly because, as we all have so many hats, um, I'm also on the board of UN Women. Mm. So I'm particularly interested in, you know, what that means for not just the women in the UK, but women worldwide. Wonderful, thank you. So these are just three of the six contributors that we had
3: over the whole series. And the podcast is available if you go to virgin.com or iTunes. And if you want to share any gems or all of the gems from tonight, you can use the hashtag future visions. Before we get going, just how the flow of this is going to go, we're going to start with a couple of seeding questions so you get a sense of, of our contributors. We'll have a discussion and then we'll open up to a Q&A. So I want you to get those questions ready. Uh, and this is, your, this is your chance to put the questions to the people that are predicting the future. And on that, Ben, I'm going to come to you because one of the things that stood out in the podcast to me was that you spoke about the future and being a futurist, but you grounded it in presentism, which I struggled to say on the actual podcast. Um, Tell us more about that. How do you think about the future, but also think about the present and now and today?
5: So I think there are two things you have to think about first when you're thinking about the future. The first one is what year are you actually living in? Or, or is your organisation operating in? So it's all very well having these entertaining conversations about the world in 2025 and those sorts of things, and we all, you know, get to do those, get to do that work and go to those sorts of conferences and things like that. But I spend an awful lot of my time talking to very large organisations, and those very large organisations, in the most, don't live in 2017. Mm. They actually operate in 2008. uh, working practices whether it's through the technology they have whether it's through their social outlook whether it's through the their, their demography uh whatever it is in general most organizations are somewhere in the past and how far in the past they are is it sort of defines the problem that they have and so a good deal of my work isn't saying you know this is where the world's going to be in 2020 it's actually this is where we are t- today mm-hmm. um, And that can be around, like I say, anything from from the technology that people are using to how much paternity leave or something like that 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 they give out. So before you can think about the future, you have to bring everybody up to the present. And then when you do bring people up to the present, another thing that you find is that, and this is the traditional moments of any form of futurism conversation where you have to rock out the traditional William Gibson quote. But the the thing about the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. Mm is a cliche, but it's actually a very, very powerful thing to think about, because so many of the things that the organizations that I work with end up absorbing are things that have been around for maybe three or four years, just somewhere else. And so again, bringing people into the future is more about bringing them into somebody else's present, whether that's social practices of scandinavian firms or it's the you know it's the commercial design from brazil or it's the working tools of california or or the the approach to street-based vending from nigeria whatever it is right it's more about waking people up to the present day when
3: we think about ai so i I think Mm. in the podcast we we used uh people are in 1997, we're bringing them up to 2017 and we're trying to get them to think about 2037. Right. How do you get people ready for a conversation about AI if they are that far back, if they haven't even got basic policies in place that enable people to use their own personal phone, not that people want to use their own personal phone for work, but that, that, you know, don't enable people to work from home, let's say?
5: You don't. I mean, at the end of the day, I think this is something that is quite difficult for people to deal with, but, and I had this conversation... At the end of last week with a client, where you do have to say, look, you don't have the right to continue in business forever.
1: Mm.
5: In fact, one of the, I think personally, one of the problems with, uh, or one of the major cultural differences between say the UK and say West Coast America or other, some other places is that here we, we keep things alive a little bit too long.
3: I'm going to move on to Tracy just quickly. So, Tracy, you gave me an existential crisis. Just saying. Did I? Um, I had a meltdown in the booth. Um, oh, listening. You've recovered well. I, I have. <laughs> I have. Um, but it, it and it was partly to do with the conversation you had around prediction. Ah, oh, yes. And how we predict the future. And. I really liked films like The Minority Report. Don't judge me mm-hmm. on that. No, but I do too. It, it did. I, I had a meltdown because I thought, this is near, this is, this is happening. Tell us more about your views on, on
6: prediction and N- ah, AI okay. without making me cry. <laughs> well, we talked about being anxious optimists, didn't we? So it, it's, I think we're optimistic, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't worry. And actually, that is one of the things about the future. Most people can only articulate a vision of the future that they would like to see. Yeah. So um, actually what we should be doing is articulating various visions of the future that are alternatives so that we can discuss the pros and cons of each of those and that can somehow sometimes get you out of the dwelling on the past or being stuck in the past. So prediction, I think we're just in a strange, partly cultural, um, partly social and definitely technological. We're in this point in time, I think, where we think because we have so much data and because we've sort of been maybe seduced by the idea of machine learning, mm. that it's almost the logic of if this, then that. That we think, you know, well, if you bought this, then you will buy that. If this happened in the past, then this will happen in the future. And we're sort of all bought into it because we're probably quite... We're having our own private meltdowns mm. about how complex that is and how we could never get our hands heads around it. And actually, it's sort of hidden in a black box of machine learning. So I think that's what's going on. But I also think culturally we've sort of bought this idea of social change in terms of a model of progress. So, Because there's, there's 11 or 12 different models of social change and we have some assumptions, particularly in the West, particularly in the States, I think, that it's progress. That's the upward forward trajectory that changes progress yeah that, that things get better okay. over time automatically yeah. get better over time that we can learn more over time that the more data we have from the past you know, into the present we will have more and more and more into the future and that somehow you know, everything's on a forward upward trajectory And therefore, why wouldn't we be able to predict? Because we've got machine learning. That's the sort of social change model. And also, we've kind of bought into GAFA, Google and Apple and Facebook, doing all of this predictive analysis for us in a social sense or with our purchases or whatever. And so we're already living that. And I just noticed over the last few years that many more clients are coming, not saying, you know, what will the future of this industry be or what will the future of this consumer be? But... So can you, um, can you predict, you know, what are going to be the big technologies we should invest in? Mm. Uh, can you predict, you know, what's going to happen to the insurance industry? And again, it's that idea that there is only one future ahead of us. And so you ought to be able to show us the signs from the past pointing towards, on this linear progressive journey, pointing towards the future. It just isn't like that. The future is plural. There are only ever futures, not future. And actually, you can't always predict what will happen in the future because it happened in the past. I mean, we know that we've had and we've had lots of reminders of that over the past few years, I think. So it's partly maybe why I got again into futuring because I could feel that there was this movement. But also, I think what it means for industries is foresight is replacing insight. Mm. And that is partly because there's so much pressure on businesses to not only uncover an insight, but act on it in time, in an accelerated culture, and be there ahead of the game. It's, it's impossible. So they're going, well, you've got to tell me what is going to happen. Give me the foresight, not the insight. Because by the time I've acted upon it, we're already there. And so I think that's, that's what's happening. It's a, it's a, whichever way you look at it, it's sort of um, a perfect storm. Or not of um, analytics, predictive analytics, a social change model, and an ability for us to to move towards foresight than than insight
5: yeah. I think that's very perceptive and I, and I think one of the things that builds on what I was saying earlier in that one of the issues that we have is that we see the future from the standpoint of today, mm. and so it's, if you look at any, any representation of the future, so if you, look at, if you look back at, say, like the Jetsons, right? Mm-hmm. The Jetsons... I
3: loved that cartoon. Right. But, Did you see the Flintstones meets the Jetsons? That was, like, the best ever. It's a perfect example of past meeting the future. Well, in fact, they're both, they're,
5: both of those things are perfect examples because yeah. both the Flintstones and the Jetsons were white, middle-class, 1950s American families mm-hmm. with a layering of, like, technology over the top of it. Yeah. And totally didn't take into account, you know, and so, and so it was it was basically the 1950s, but with rockets, mm-hmm. or the 1950s, yeah. but with things hewn out of rock, mm-hmm. right? Not as necessarily as future-y. Um Whereas if the Jetsons had had, if it had, had 2017 gender norms mm-hmm. and 2017 viewpoints around sexuality or the workplace or education, politics, or any any of the, you know, society in general, mm-hmm. it would have been... Utterly unacceptable in 1950. It would have been completely yep. freaky. They just it would have just been this thing that would be would have been completely rejected, and so that the difference between foresight and insight. If you're being asked to make foresight predictions, what you're really doing is taking today and putting it into like putting mm-hmm. them, putting them in mirror shades. Mm-hmm. And, and this in the same way as, like, when anybody ever does, and it's maybe every couple of years the V&A or somebody like that does it, which is, like, the future of fashion, and it's always today's fashion but with blinky lights in. <laughs> mm. It's always shit because it's, because it's not... Because the future of fashion isn't that, right? The future of fashion is, like, the lapels get a bit wider mm-hmm. and Nike have a slightly different material. Mm-hmm. But over time, things accrete into the future.
3: So just on that, so I, I think there's a distinction there between the workplace and individual's relationship with sort of pre- past, present and yes. future, which we'll come back to. So I wanna bring in Araceli. So you focus on human behavior in the workplace. And I, there is that relationship between who we are as individuals, what we know, what we believe, and what the workplace is setting up for us, especially in relation to AI or AR or or a whole host of other things. What do you foresee as some of the challenges that we face as individuals ultimately being in workplaces, ones that we choose to go to or ones that we create for ourselves?
4: Well, I don't know if this is going to answer the question, but I think in the conversation about how we're imagining the future and who gets to imagine the future, I think that is going to be a very difficult turning point when it comes to building up the workforce because as you've been mentioning Ben about we can only build the future with what we currently have and There are a lot of demographics that are facing deep inequality and social-economic struggle. And I think, when are you going to have the space and the time to be able to think about the future? And how do we bring Mm -hmm, these mm -hmm. people forward into the workspace? Because if they don't have a place now, they're going to have even less of a place in the future and therefore social inequality will grow. And that to me is the, the biggest concern. I'm not really concerned about robots taking over our jobs. That's mm-hmm. fine, mm-hmm. they can do that. Um, my concern is what are we going to do with those people that we're leaving further and further behind?
3: And what's the role, what role do you think entrepreneurship can play? And I've just, in asking that question, shown my bias. But, it, you know, do you think entrepreneurship plays a role there if people are
4: pushed out of, out of the workplace? It does play a role. And actually, Puff Daddy just sat down with... Maxim Waltz. Yes, Waltz. Waltz. And he does think that entrepreneurship is the answer of, of for social inequality. And it is. But we have to be able to give people those platforms. Because one of the things that we need in regards to cognitive skills to be able to move ahead is... Cognitive flexibility, and that is a much more sophisticated, and I say sophisticated in regards that it just takes a lot more time to get there, not sophisticated in a range of IQ or anything Mm -hmm. like that. And to be able to have that time to generate that cognitive flexibility, you need to not be stressed. Stressed in regards to how do I pay rent? Mm -hmm. How do I go to the next moment in life? So if we're going to do that, and we're going to do that through entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship needs that. So therefore, we need to go into these communities and allow them for that space and time so they can have the cognitive space to be able to imagine, to be able to innovate. So yes, but with help, I would say. So what is cognitive
3: flexibility and what is cognitive space? So for someone that's not that doesn't use this language on a day to day basis, I I was like, I know what this means but it's late. so. Well,
4: cognitive space, I just made up. So um, <laughs> so I, div- I, I, I mean that, that you have time to be able to imagine, that you give yourself that time. Yeah. And we see it stress. It could be stress of how do you pay the rent, but it's also stress of how do I make that next deadline? You don't have time. You constantly have to be reactive. And to be able to philosophize, to be able to allow the mind to wonder so you can create different associations, that is what I'm calling cognitive space. Cognitive flexibility is an actual term. Um, psychological term, and it's it's being able to hold different concepts at the same time, and it's also being able to switch between different concepts um, quicker. So, for example, if you were opening a door that every day you you push, and then the next day it's locked, the time that it takes you to realize, oh, it's perhaps that it's locked, or maybe they changed the door, maybe I shouldn't just sit here and tuck at it that span of time that it takes, somebody somebody that has high levels of cognitive flexibility will figure that out quicker. They won't just sit there and just tug at the door. Um, so if you take that on a, on a more macro scale, people that are able to go, okay, great, I can't go down this line of thinking. I'm going to now go down a different line of thinking. Mm-hmm. But for that, you need mental calmness. You need yep. to be calm. And that's, I think, what we're losing because either we've got economic um, deadlines or we've got work deadlines that don't allow us. And I think that's when, yes, we're going to lose jobs because we're not giving the people that time. So, so. I had a battle with a with door and it was a sliding
3: door <laughs> as opposed to a push-pull door. took me a while, just saying. <laughs> there are other options. Uh, just a quick poll. Who here feels like they have cognitive space to expand their thinking, learn new things w- within the time of, of a working day or, or building a business? Okay, half, half the audience making space, feel like you've got space. Okay, half the audience do. Ben?
5: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think what you've just been saying is very true. There's been quite a few studies on the sort of cognitive overhead of being poor, for example, or, the, or, or being in an economically precarious situation where if you're constantly worried that you're not going to make the rent in two months' time, mm. then you just don't have the... You know, you physically don't have the ability to, to sort of ponder your next startup.
3: I accept that, but the reason that I brought it up was, for me personally, I would not be sitting in this chair if it wasn't for my what I call my innate entrepreneurial ability and my ability to see opportunities. And it leads me onto a question for the whole panel around skills. What skills do we need to be supporting the next generation to have, but also the people that are currently in workplaces thinking about their career over the next
6: 20 mm. years? I've, I've just done a piece of work with somebody actually on the future of education, mm. And it's become very clear that at the moment we're not really turning out people from the school system who are that ready for the world of work, even the world of work now. And that's partly because it's a sort of test and learn, sort of, you know, learn by rote. Yep. Um, and actually, everybody is calling for more critical thinking. So, and, and actually, if you look at the World Economic Forum and their forecasts for the top 20 skills for 2020, Uh, which isn't 2037, but we're we're getting there. It's complex problem-solving, absolutely number one, and I imagine it will be for a very long time. It's critical thinking and then it's creativity. And what's interesting is the shifts. So things like people management are sort of moving out of there. Emotional intelligence is coming in. So you, you can see, I think, that there's a shift of sort of outsourcing some of the old skills, obviously, to AI or to machines or to automation, So even people management type stuff, being outsourced, any decision making, sort of being outsourced like that. So a knowledge transfer into machines and a sort of role for people, humans, which is much more about sense making. We're living in a very sort of volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous world and so... Where's the critical thinking? Where's the complex problem-solving? And that's what... It, it doesn't really matter what happens in the world of work unless, in the world of education, you are preparing people in the right sort of way for the world of work. It kind of doesn't matter. So that I think you've got to see the whole thing as, a, as one system, if you like. Thank you. Oh, Charlie.
4: I would say the number one would be cognitive empathy. So that means not just so you've got empathy, which is, can be defined from an emotive perspective, but cognitive empathy is the ability to to extend your mind almost as far as, as it can away from yourself. So how you can look at things outside your own state, which then goes into theory of mind, which means you understand quite Deeply that there are other states of thinking and minds and worlds outside of your own, because I think that is what we are losing. And it, and I find it really interesting in regards to the contrast to fake news is almost hyperbolic truth or, so, or sorry yeah hyperbolic truth where people are going to such lengths to bring out truth, which is fantastic, but then we don't know how to deal with those truths because we want them to fit in very specific boxes i.e. are boxes Mm -hmm. and and they're not. Um, And so people are having a real trouble to go to almost come. um, I had a conversation at the weekend about what, you know, like we're just getting too many new words, too many new pronouns, too many new and they get really flustered. And I'm like, yeah, but that's fine. So what? Just learn it. And that's what I mean. About, sorry, that's cognitive flexibility as well. Um, so yeah, so I think it's that—that that cognitive empathy to be just relaxed, relaxed with the change, and be able to extend yourself and be comfortable with that extension.
3: And so, Ben, when you walk into organisations and you're working with them to think about the future, do they say who should we be hiring? Like, what should our job specs be? How are they putting skills into the context of the roles that they need to align to this this new world?
5: Sadly, no, actually. Okay. The majority of the time, they, they're not even that far ahead. They do ask, you know, what should... Well, a lot of them, because they're all middle-aged, are all asking, what should my kids be doing at school? Absolutely, that, <laughs> that, sort, of, that sort of conversation. But I think the present scene with clear eyes is so confusing. Mm-hmm. You know, Rachel's point is very true, right? You know, I, all the time, people are just going, uh, uh, we have to call, you know... Uh, we, we, pronouns, ah, mm-hmm. men are marrying men now, help, mm-hmm. you know, they freak out, right, and mm-hmm. so, so they either sit back into nostalgia and you get this sort of militant mm-hmm. nostalgia thing happening, mm-hmm. and we've seen the political ramifications of that, or they just blank out a little bit, <laughs> like, oh. Right. Mm-hmm. and they'll grasp onto whatever is is cozy for them, and so the questions they are asking for is, is are things like they're very very low hanging. It's things like you know, how do I become more innovative, or like can I be you know, how do I maximise my disruptionness. Oh, yeah. And, like, I need to be more creative and things like that.
3: Do you just write no on a piece of paper and slide it back over the no. table? No, no, like, no. See
5: no, up. no, 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 I print it out beautifully <laughs> and charge them a <laughs> lot of money. But effectively, yes. Because I think also in an organisation, you, you have to start looking at... I mean, with an individual client, mm-hmm. it's different. But with an organisation, you're, you're actually asking a different question. It's not how do you as the individual executive become more... Creative, innovative, whatever—it's how do you, as a member of a team, have that team become more innovative? Mm-hmm. And so that then allows you to come into the to bring into the conversation the fact that maybe the team should be made up of different people, maybe the question you're asking the team is the wrong question, and so on and so on and so on. But there's, I think I'd like to highlight that difference—the difference between. Uh, an individual person's approach to the future and an organisation's approach to the future. Because uh, along with that sort of chronological sort of lag that organisations have, people have that too. And to be honest, people can get away with it in a way that organisations can't. Mm. It's perfectly fine, in fact, very common, for people to be living sometime in the past and actually to go backwards. Mm -hmm. So right now, again, if you go out to the...
3: From a, a regression... Backwards or...?
5: Well, I mean, I think it's regressive, but other people find it nostalgic or they just think they're really into vinyl now, right? Fine. But but either way, Mm -hmm. and that's fine if you are that one person. If you're the one dude who's decided to wear lots of tweed and play lots of vinyl and drink old-fashioned cocktails, okay, that's fine. Mm -hmm. You can be that one person on the team Mm -hmm. as long as you also have this woman. Mm -hmm. This, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it's,
3: the, it's diversity of thought around the table and people that bring different perspectives. Yeah. And so I, I want to hold on to this conversation, but I also want to jump into something that it does, it's hard to, to, to give an intro per se. What's the deal with the robots and them taking our jobs? Aricelli, you were like, mm-hmm. whatevs. I mean, explain. Are they taking our jobs? Are we, are we OK? Is it blue-collar jobs? Is it white-collar jobs? Are all of the guys in law firms out of jobs because the algorithms are going to do it all? Like, what's going on?
4: Okay, so I'm going to start really macro with this. First, we're going to really quick crash course on where we are in neuroscience. We are understanding how a neuron works, and we're getting really good technology on how neurons are communicating, and there's actually one um that just recently came out but understanding a neuron is very different than understanding the brain we still are really far from that
3: just wait a neuron is a sorry thing sorry in a the neuron brain. is
4: a type of cell in the brain right. and it's only one type of cell in the brain we right. still haven't even categorized all the different types of cells in the brain so the idea that we're going to create a robot that is going to have analogous or similar intelligence to humans is no secondly AI, if you talk to AI programmers or developers, they're not trying to create human intelligence. We don't need to. If we were afraid of machines, we should have been afraid of the calculator because a calculator helps us do mathematics and arithmetic that we cannot. But it, but it doesn't know context. Some of this AI will know context, and that's fine. But I think where it, what it will do, hopefully, is it will give us that time. And it's almost that for me, I think it's that machines will be able to do what machines should have always done, the work of machines, and humans should be doing the work of humans. There is no need for a human to be picking up our rubbish. We can leave that to a machine, but we need to educate those humans into a new form. And that's that's where, again, I see the gap that we need to bring those people forward. We need to create a new form of educating people because we're not. We're still educating for people to go work in factories mm-hmm. rather than to think. And so that's why I don't think robots are going to take over our jobs. I think hopefully we'll make it will humanize us because if... A machine can do really great diagnostics of cancer or any of those types of things then the doctor can take care of the human and pick up on the cues that we are able to do as humans we don't need to then program the ai to also pick up human type cues do you know what i mean yeah so it's just knowing who
6: does what tracy do you agree mm-hmm. I, I do agree i think we confuse it almost through the semiotics or the aesthetics Mm -hmm. of it, because we've got some sort of want to anthropomorphise machines. Uh, 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 Who now? Uh, 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 Anthropomorphise machines. Like, the fact that we... I mean, I won't have (laughs) Alexa in my house because I'm so off that it 's gendered right. that it 's a sort of digital servant assistant and it has to be fem- female and it has to have a and is that an gun. explanation
3: of anthropy or well
6: it 's a humanized version of what is a physical manifestation of okay. of in you know machine intelligence and there 's a lot of work on this like the guys that are involved in robot ethics in academia i mean they 're really worried about this mm-hmm. because we 're teaching ourselves to have some kinds of emotional relationships with machines, is that right? And, you know, if we want... Do we want them to understand us to that extent? And if they do understand us and we feel that they have empathy and emotion towards us, how does that then make us feel towards them again? Mm -hmm. And so there's this whole unknown, really, about the effects that will have. I think when Google launched, it was a white box on a white screen screen it looked like a machine, it was a search algorithm and it looked like a machine and that was intentional because it was supposed to be machine-like, untouched by, you know, Mm -hmm. humanness, if you like and that's part of the reason it was so successful and so efficient and so brilliant you know, very different to the aesthetics of Apple or whatever and I think that we should think about machines a bit more like that because then I think they will be our sort of you know, they will be complementary to what we're doing. We can outsource some of our decisions. But that doesn't mean they're going to take our jobs. Ben is chomping at the bit to say
3: something. Are the robots taking our jobs? What's going on?
5: No, robots aren't taking jobs. Robots are taking tasks. Mm. They'll take tasks from you. Now, if your job consists entirely of tasks that are done by robots, yeah, your job's gone to the robots. But that's always been the case. Mm-hmm. We've gone through many different sort of revolutions of machines that have come in to take tasks off our hands. That, that hasn't made people idly unemployed. It's just given them space to do other things. Whether you're talking about the washing machine completely changed a lot of women in the you know, early 20th century, or whether you're talking about you know the motor car or... or or the typewriter, or the photocopier, the calculator, or the spreadsheet, or whatever it is. We've always had machines that come in that take tasks off our hands. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing now is just that the complexity of the tasks that can be done has greatly increased. Now, hopefully, in my mind, that enables that sort of cognitive space that we've been looking for so that we humans can fill our time with more sophisticated and more interesting and more, Mm -hmm. you know, more human stuff. and pushing back against it has no more logical grounds than, you know, waking up tomorrow morning and deciding that you're going to go back to the only having technology from 1982 or mm-hmm. becoming Amish or something like that.
3: So I want to jump in with a question, a closing question for the panel so we can get to some questions. So how do we win at this? How do we survive? How do we thrive in 2037? What's our relationship With AI. If it can be done
5: by a machine, Mm -hmm. give it to the machine to do and do something better. There we go. That's at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. But if one is so lacking in imagination Mm -hmm. that if one gives all one's tasks away to a machine to do that you have literally nothing to do then, then yeah, you're screwed. But AI or just like a change in the economy would have screwed you too.
3: Mm -hmm. Is there an asset based way we can say that, a positive way we can say that?
5: Yeah, the positive thing is like, we do really boring stuff at work right now. There's a whole load of stuff that everybody does every day which they'd really rather not.
3: So we can be free.
5: And so, well, not free. Actually, no, it actually makes life harder because suddenly you're no longer doing, you know, of your 50-hour week, 40 hours of boring stuff goes away, Mm -hmm. which means you have to fill those 40 hours with solving harder problems. Mm -hmm. And for some of us, only having hard stuff to do is amazing right? Yay. I can finally get rid of the boring things and I've got, I've got a weak load of impossible problems to solve. Amazing. For some of us, that sounds awful.
4: Okay. On that note, I'm going to go to Araceli. Well, two points. The first one um, that I forgot to mention is, so even when we think of them being highly, highly sophisticated in AI, so one of the biggest examples or most popular examples was the game Go. We have to understand that AI their intelligence is singular. When they know how to do one thing, they know how to do that one thing well. They can't then transfer the knowledge somewhere else. So just because that machine can beat you at go, it, that same one won't be able to beat you at running. Do you know what I mean? So it's it's very specific and aligned. So, again, they're basically massive spreadsheets that can, and, and, you know, that that's it. I think we mystify them, as you said, um, too much. So I would say, I go back to my original thing. I think in the fact that we have more time, I think we need to solve social inequality. I think we need to solve racism. I think we need to solve the, the, just the things that just don't allow us to be a sophisticated society. You know, mm-hmm. we still have homelessness. We still have problems that have existed and that we have brought through centuries. Mm-hmm. And I think those problems now need to be solved and we will now have the space for it. And that's where I am very hopeful of the future modern slavery being one
3: yes and finally tracy how how do we thrive how do we thrive how do we survive
6: (laughs) well i don't mind this debate about i mean it irritates me on the one hand but i don't mind the debate about you know robot takeover will they take our jobs because i think the way that we are thriving is to leverage the, the ethics of it to have the discussion, the debate around the ethics. And actually, this sort of you know, two big trends, you know, technology or automation and also humanization, it's all going to meet in a bigger mega trend, which is all about the ethicality, the ethicality of business, people's lives, how they spend their time, what is meaningful, um, all of those things. And actually... These sorts of debates, that problem that looks like a problem, will robots take our jobs, has opened up a huge debate and discussion, and that's all for the good, I think, because we will thrive by having conversations about it in real life, sitting in front of each other, having a drink on, a panel discussion, whatever it might be, and that's the way we'll thrive.
3: Thank you. So before I hand over to the audience for a couple of questions, the, sort of, the thought that's rolling around in my head is that we have the language... To have this, well, some of us have the language to have this conversation. I've learned some new words. Um, to have this conversation and come up with solutions, but also dissect what's going on within organisations, or you know, clearly explain uh, what AI is and, and what machine learning is. I feel challenged for the generation younger than me that don't have this language. They have a different language, but they don't have this language, and they need to be brought into this conversation somehow so i'm just going to park that thought while i throw it over to the audience for any questions
1: yeah, uh, just had a question about kind of, I guess, uh, dealing with AI in the future and you talked about kind of entrepreneurialism, but I guess, I guess, c- can you deal with future and AI in kind of two ways, like near term, so that there's stuff that we know that's going to happen, right? So we know that self-driving cars are going to happen in the next five to 10 years. We know retail jobs are going to go. So that's a huge demographic of people that, that we know that we need to deal with. So I guess is the right thing to broaden the conversation and say, like, what can we do about those near-terms? And then the long-terms are just so hard to predict. You can't... All you can do is test. You don't know when customers or people are ready for certain technologies or whatever. So, I don't know, maybe the best way of dealing with AI in the future is kind of the certainty of stuff we know that's going to happen... So long long haul lorry drivers, they're going to be in trouble in a, in a few years. Retail jobs are going to go. So that's kind of low skilled workers, I guess. So how do we help those sorts of people, um, given that we know those things are going to happen? And
3: who are you? Where are you from?
1: I'm Rob. Rob Moore. Uh, work at
2: Farfetch.
3: Lovely. Thank you. And I'll take this question too, and then the panel can ask them together. So we've got another question here, I
2: think. Jonathan Spenhouse from uh, Virgin Startup. Um, my question is around, really, there's a few leaders in this space, employees, uh, recently an insurance company asked 16,000 of its employees, can a robot take your job? Uh, anyone that email back, they will then help with future training and, and really kind of repositioning of where they're going. How do employees almost kind of reshape their organisation to be able to provide these services? And this is more than just advanced Excel training. This is actually repositioning them for the future. And if education's broken, then how can employees better adopt you know new learnings from there?
3: OK, thank you. So my name is Alison Cowers, my company is Bracket. And I'm very interested in um, what Araceli was saying and also what Ben was saying around this idea of cognitive privilege um, and cognitive flexibility and cognitive space. So I feel that we're in a situation, we're in a position, everyone in this room, we're in a position where we can kind of see both sides. We can see um, the, the people that kind of need the space. We need to create the space for them to have, to basically be involved in this conversation. We're also working with people that are in the situation, that are kind of stuck in their privilege, in a sense, and can't see... That um, there are other people that should have a, a seat at the table and should be part of that conversation. So, what do we do? Okay. So, three brilliant questions. So, can we bring the future forward? What do organisations need to do? How do they train and support their workforce if it's not happening within the education system? And how do we connect the dots?
5: I think the only way you can approach the future is a year at a time, because the far future isn't the far future happening today. It's the near future happening to the near to the medium future. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And because things always go in a weird direction, you're always going to get a, a faraway prediction entirely wrong. I mean, easiest example of this is something I use all the time. It's like if you went back 15 years ago. And 15 years ago is not a long time mm-hmm. in the grand scheme of things.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: Pretty much every technology we've mentioned this evening and used this evening wouldn't have existed right no facebook no twitter no iphone no smartphones in general in fact no youtube no blah 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 blah, Mm -hmm. blah. all of those different things Mm -hmm. right that's only 15 years ago so 15 years from today (laughs) who knows who knows right 13 years from today talking about 15 years from today we can totally make a Mm -hmm. prediction so so that then leads us to okay so how do you get how does an organization prepare itself educationally well this is i think that to me the big difference between a an optimal education system for the future and the one we have at the moment is that the one we have at the moment presumes that you can stop learning when you get to 21 mm-hmm. or 16 or whatever, you know, depending on your station in life. And we've learned that obviously that's nonsense because everybody in this room, I will guarantee, is probably doing something which if they went back in time 15 years and tried to explain to their 15-year-old self, they'd be in an asylum, yeah. right? You're a social media manager? What's that? Okay, right. So, um, you know, and Mm -hmm. like the cognitive skill that you need is this is this cognitive flexibility and and being able to reinvent yourself. And as long as you are taught to be able to you're constantly taught to constantly reinvent yourself, then you're always going to be in a good position. Yeah. That then leads us to this thing of how do you connect the dots? And if you are in a position where you, you can literally think of nothing other than present day survival, then the privilege of being able to say, sit back and go like, her. what is my five-year plan? How, what's my professional development look like? How, how am I going to reinvent myself? Is hilarious, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a farce. It's the sort of thing that you get you slapped. You know, if you went to somebody who was looking after a screaming child in the middle of the night and said, you know, whilst you're looking after your newborn, can you think about your, career, you know, your five-year career plan? You're gonna get stabbed in the eye. <laughs> right, and but it's it's that sort of thing writ writ large. Mm,
3: I so. agree. My granddad's the same thing all the time. I, I'm always sort of giving him stories about what mm-hmm. I want to do with the time. it's like, "Why? You, you can only ever live in one room in your big house at at one time." like it's life is not that complicated it's really really simple and so anytime i say to you know talk about anything but at the end of the year he's like but you haven't even finished today so (laughs) finish today and then
6: get on to next year tracy so i think to be what slightly different points of view because i'm very much i know that's great um so i'm very much you have to envision the future and work back right so the one thing we do know that's going to happen in the far-ish future is the merging of technology and biology so all of the stuff that we're seeing at the moment you know in testing in in silico testing you know organ on a chip body on a chip all of that sort of stuff is happening now Um, and it's got some really quite um, impressive depending on which way you think about it impressive consequences big ethical questions of course but also you're going to be able to predict out lots of um, physical behavior you know you're going to be able to predict out what it's like to be 150 years old as a human without a human ever having been 150 years old. So all this modelling, all this predictive stuff, as biology and technology gets really, really close together, so it's merging as if it's, it's one thing, we do know that that is going to happen. What we don't know is the way it's going to play out. Mm. At the moment, you know, people are already testing out and running data, encoding data into DNA you know, recording albums on DNA, all that sort of stuff. So you can see the pockets of the future in the present there, but we know that's going to happen. What does that mean for retail? Who knows? It could be uber personalization, it could be something to do with clothing and biology and technology again being much more integrated all those sorts of things but that's our job I think to work back we know it's going to happen so we need to work back to go in what way do we want that to happen in terms of insur- insurance is fascinating at the moment because that is a real that is one industry that is really getting into the prediction game Big time so robo insurance and all of that and and again they are looking at dna and how is your own personal dna going to reflect an impact on your insurance premium and your in, your insurance package and all of that sort of stuff but i think what's going to happen with most of those industries is it's not so much about knowledge and information it is about advice so similar in retail actually Every industry that used to rely on information is having to move towards an advisory, a position of advice. So how can you... So Nordstrom's really interesting. So they've just set up their um, store, haven't they? They're, they're, they're not selling anything. It's service and advice in that store. So, And again, I think with insurance, moving into the advisory role rather than just the acting and reacting on the information that's given to us. And then on the third question, sorry to... Hmm. I'll try and be quick. I don't know how you join the dots, but I think there are certain companies like Code 2040 who are trying to bring about diversity, cognitive diversity as well, into the workforce. So they're helping some of the big tech companies hire the right types of different types of people into the workforce, not because it's an HR compliance issue, because it's a real commercial driver, because those companies won't be able to exist unless they do show that sort of diversity in the future. I think those are sort of small signals of change and hopefulness. And finally, Araceli.
4: Find the parts of your business or your job that really connect... On a human level, I think we've become, and we're carrying it again, this this idea, an obsession with just selling for the sake of selling. We need to get rid of that, be useful. And I think you can only be useful if you understand humans and become more human-centric. So Oliver, who does illustration, that is one of the things that people are saying, oh, well, a computer can do it. But just like how another person, I wouldn't illustrate and create a story the same way that Oliver does there is something about a human quality that will always be different? So I think find the humanness and the usefulness in what you're doing to solve that problem now. Um, Alison, to your point, it's just bring people to the table, bring them with you. And if you are sitting in a group and you realize that there is no diversity, whether cognitively, racially, demo- and, and various others, demographics, protest that or protest to it, you know, that bring other people in, invite other people in, tell people that there are all these other alternatives. Because the other thing that we haven't talked about is neurodiversity, which is the diverse... You know, we are only able to, at the moment, include people that are not depressed, highly functional, et cetera, Mm -hmm. and we need to extend that. There's a a great movement in America about people with Down syndrome that are going to Congress, and that's amazing, and that's awesome, and I think we can bring them to the table. So... Um, And then creating different platforms like this. And there are, you know, co-working spaces are becoming that. They're a platform of discussion where you can ask questions and philosophize.
3: And so there have been so many points across this conversation that it it really is hard to pull together some kind of summary that is going to do it justice. I think the only thing that I can say is that what's certain is uncertainty. We each have a role in, in figuring out what we do with that the future will be the present at some point. So the point at which we start planning for that is again up to us. And lastly, we need to understand our relationship to this, both as individuals walking around society day to day and what we can do, but also what that means in the organisations that we work in, but also the organisations we create. If you've enjoyed this, there are more podcasts where you get a whole hour of, of, of Ben, you get a whole hour of Tracy, you get a whole hour of Araceli, talking about their perspectives in more detail. There are other contributors... And I hope that you've been sharing your thoughts using the Future Visions hashtag, so Future Visions. I have been Natalie Campbell, and I, for one, have have learnt so much this evening and, you know, lots of of mental notes. So I want to say a huge thank you to Aracheli Camargo, Cognitive Neuroscientist and Lab Director at Centric Lab. Thank you, London. Thank you. Ben Hammersley, British internet technologist, journalist, author, broadcaster, and futurist. And Tracy Follows, award-winning futurist, working with clients like Google and Diageo. Thank you very much. (laughs) Remember, to find out more about the Future Vision series, go to virgin.com or iTunes. The Future Visions podcast was a Pixie production for Virgin. From me, Natalie Campbell, goodbye.